Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. Today we have the one and only Dr. Stacey Sims on the podcast. How exciting was this episode? It was incredible. It was insane. So Stacey Sims is one of the leading researchers uh, in women's physiology and training. So she has an incredible background. She also has a world famous TED talk, which is called Women Are Not Small Men. And I'm sure a lot of um, you girls and guys have listened to that and really resonated with the message. So this was an incredible episode. Uh, I was definitely super pumped for it. I referenced Stacey a lot in everything that I put out there. And she's a big reason as to, you know, why I started tracking my cycle in the first place and optimizing performance around it yep women's health empowering women I feel pumped after this episode Mm. and there were so many gold nuggets to take out whether you're a young athlete whether you're leading into menopause whether you're post-menopausal the message that I took we cannot be scared to lift heavy shit no matter how old we are okay eat like an athlete train like an athlete recover like an athlete yeah how good Absolutely. So let's get into the show and we hope you enjoy it. It's time to level up. Dr. Stacey Sims, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Sherelle and I have been listening to your work for a long, long, long time. And I've even refreshed myself by listening to your famous TED talk this morning. And I just get so like amped up and girl power and, and, you know, it's all about the women here. So, and here at Level Up, you know, we are not shy when talking about women's health and hormones and all of that. And I think there's a big movement happening. Uh, so we could not wait to have you on and are so excited to have you here today. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to talk to more like-minded people. Never mind the big bass that's going on in the background as the cars drive by. Oh, it's all happening. We're getting in the zone today. It's getting into a party already and we're just getting started. Yeah, we're just laughing off here about the kids who are potentially going to be crashing our podcast, but that's yeah. totally okay. We're more than merrier. Um, I think it might be the high school kids that are like driving by in their out cars at the moment. There you go. Well, maybe hopefully one day talks like this will be in high schools and then, you know, those kids get to learn this. I wish we uh, sort yeah. of learned more about that in high schools, which we'll get into um, right. as we come right. up. So I'm pumped. Yeah. No. Yeah, like Danny said, we're so excited and I feel like we reference your work and your book and your TED Talks and everything that you're researching so often. So our listeners will be very familiar um, with your work, I guess. But would you mind starting off, you know, telling us a little bit about your story and what inspired your research and your famous TED Talk? Oh, gosh, that's going back lots of years. Mm. But um, I was always one of those little kids that asked why and it kind of went through and when I got to university, I was on the crew team or the rowing team, and we were training as groups of men and women doing pretty much the same stuff, same workouts. And it always seemed like the guys would peak at the right time and the girls would kind of fall flat. And at the same time in an ex-phys class and started doing uh, lab experiments, you know, as you do as you're trying to learn stuff. And I would be one of the only women that would volunteer to be a participant. And then my results would often get thrown out as being anomalies. And so I started asking these questions, why? And they're like, oh, you know, because you're not the same and we don't really study women. So it's just, and so all of those kind of answers didn't sit well. Mm. I'm like, wait, I'm a girl, <laughs> right? And started trying to really figure it out and monitoring like menstrual cycle and trying to understand how that might, because you all always talk about how your mood affects your performance and realize this really started to be kind of like this interesting pattern of when it was high hormone phase feeling crappy and not performing well. And then when the low hormone phase came, it was like, you could really nail it. And saw some of that kind of coming out in the lab results where my results be very similar to the men when I was in the low hormone, but mm. they throw them out when I was in the high hormone. So that really kind of instigated my questioning. And all the time going through being an elite athlete and having the training programs and all the sociocultural things around it about not talking about your periods, being amenorrheic as being a good thing. And none of that's that well either. Mm -hmm. So having the advantage of being an academic as well as an athlete, I was able to really dig in and really start to find 
answers to these questions and fighting the whole way through, like being told, well, why do you want to study women we don't know enough about men? Or you're not a real scientist, you do too much in the population because I'm not a bench scientist. Oh so goodness. really fighting that patriarchy, patriarchal experience all the way through. Um, and that kind of, you know, accumulated in what I talked about in the TED talk of saying, you know, all of these things come through, you have all these ideas, these myths, how all these things are supposed to benefit women, but in reality, it ends up putting us in this box that we keep fighting against. So diet trends, we're fighting against the results because we're not finding the results that we want, primarily because it's data from men. And we know from birth, we have sex differences. And more and more research now in the past five years is starting to explore that and explain it. And then coming on podcasts like yours, where you guys are really pushing the messaging of like, women are different. We have these things that are different that make us more powerful than someone who's not aware. And I think the conversations are starting to be had. And so when I did the TED talk, it was just kind of at the beginning of that. And now that I see that there's like this wider reach of people are really um, like resonating with the messaging from that TED talk saying, yeah, women are not small men. So it kind of puts me where we are. Mm, that's incredible. And I think um, you, you said it very well. Like it's really only the last five years that the message is really starting to be pushed. And I'm even finding it's not even just females, but a lot of male coaches are starting to recognize it, starting to wanting uh, learn to understand more about physiology, about the period, about the cycle and how they can optimize their female athletes. So it's really cool to be able to see your work really come through and then have platforms like this to be able to spread that message even further. Yeah. And part of me wonders if like, because women are now becoming more comfortable about talking about having a period or being on an OC or, you know, some of the issues that come around a menstrual cycle, if that's driving the male coach to find out more about it, or my hope is that the male coach is wanting to know more about it to empower their female athletes. Mm. Might be the hope. But I'm hoping that it's becoming more and more of the men wanting to understand to be able to get more out of their female athletes rather than, oh, I have to understand this because I keep getting questions about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the more that us women band together and, you know, are proud to talk about it, they don't have a chance if they don't want to get around it. I mean, I remember in high school to talk about your period was like one of the most embarrassing things that you could do do just because of the stigma around it. I remember having to rush to the toilets and like doing what I need to do. Put your tampon up your sweater. Yeah, the pad or the tampon in (laughs) your sweater sleeve. You know, and and I would always write notes for PE to to get out of it when I had it, just not because I was ashamed, but just because I didn't want people's reaction to it. Everyone Mm. was so uncomfortable. So I love that slowly we're becoming more confident to be able to talk about it because it is what it is. And what you said in your talk, 50%, if not more of the population of of women. So maybe the men are the anomalies, you know, so hey. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, I mean, if, when you're talking about high school and stuff, I remember a friend coming over and, you know, growing up in the States, you all have the community pool, right? And we were all excited to go cool off in the middle of summer at the end of school, right? Because we go up to June, it's really hot. And she's like, oh, I can't go. And I'm like, why not? I have my period. Yep. So, but it was to her, like, even with tampon, she couldn't go into the pool because she was afraid. And she was embarrassed to tell me until it came to the very last minute of, oh, I have to tell my friend because I don't want to get spying. And that always stuck with me. I was like, mm-hmm. something, you know, inherent. So I don't want my daughter to ever experience that. That's another motivating factor. Mm-hmm. All those taboos that we grew up with, right? Let's just X them. Yeah. Let's get and- rid of them. It's one thing to um, feel embarrassed or shame about the normal, but then there's this other side where like reproductive diseases and endo and PCOS and women are feeling more comfortable to voice their concerns and their, um, you know, their training and their nutrition and how to optimize that. So it's, you know, I feel like if we can, if we can speak about the normal and what to expect, it also allows these other women who are experiencing side effects and feeling abnormal, be able to speak openly about that and then hopefully push research and everything 
everything in that direction because you know as you said um a lot of the research is done on men and it's really it's not even just in fitness like absolutely but even in health and and medicine in general like a lot of the um the population and the sample is is male so even myself going through a lot of research and trying to become a better coach it is hard to be able to generalize that to a lot of my clients who are you know reproductive females and be able to say look this is what the research says but you know it's all based on men so you're really stepping into that space and um providing that which is awesome oh thanks yeah it's a funny world man you think about it it's like someone comes out with this big media blase about new research and we should do this we should do that and then it disseminates down to some men it's like when then when you ask the question what about women they're like crickets you don't hear anything Mm, yeah and now we have sort of a world of social media and influences and the messages can get mixed up because yeah obviously Sherelle and I heavily in the fitness industry and I know most of your research is on sporting performance as well but much of a muchness you know but um we're really uh stopping the separation between health and fitness because there is a difference really for us to get lean on stage as a competitor often health was put in the wayside and oh yep. it's normal to lose your period and all of that so I'm excited to be able to talk about some of the differences between males and females when it does come to nutrition training performance and all of that um, so if if I could ask you what the number one difference is I suppose between males and females when it does come to nutrition what would that be? Oh, so from a physiological and biological standpoint, the number one um, sex difference is this neuropeptide called kisspeptin. Now, kisspeptin is very sensitive to um, the nutritional status in both men and women. But the threshold for turning off the endocrine system is way lower in men than it is in women. So women are very sensitive to missteps in caloric intake, to carbohydrate, um, and some of the first things you start to see when kisspeptin starts to get downturn is thyroid dysfunction, lowering of your resting metabolic rate. And then a few months down the line, you start having really irregular periods or a, a misstep in what your regularity is of like really heavy bleeding for two days and then it stops as opposed to five or six days of your normal cycle. So when we're talking about like men being on fasted diets or keto diets, it's because the threshold for a perturbation is so much different than it is women. And this is where I think a lot of that nutrition uh, information starts to become a misstep, where we assume that everything from a threshold standpoint and from a genomic standpoint is the same. And even right down to muscle mitochondria, you know, the oxygen powerhouse, right? There's different gene expressions that get turned on through estrogen um, in women that don't get turned on by men. So from a metabolic efficiency standpoint, where you're trying to do like higher fat, lower carb works for men because they don't have the same genetic predisposition for having a greater capacity for fatty acid oxidation. Mm. Women are there. And the more exposure that they have to low carb, the more that kisspeptin gets produced. So it's mm-hmm. a very fine nuance. And this is where that conversation in the nutrition space becomes so convoluted because all this data keeps being pulled over from you know, male data. But then when you dig down into a little bit deeper into endocrinology, into physiology, into some of the genetic stuff, you start seeing why we have these sex differences in responses. Mm. That's really interesting. That is really interesting because all we hear about, right, is testosterone and estrogen. So it's, it's you know, and it's ve- that's very black and white. It's like, oh, yeah, men have 10 times more testosterone. And that's all that gets thrown around. Um, and it makes me question, you know, all these um, macro calculators and, and you know, the numbers mm-hmm. just mattering the most. It's, there's so much more to nutrition than just carbs, protein, and fat. Oh, so much more. Like we know specifically from research that's come out in the past three years, it's not about the total calorie intake. It's about the timing of when you're eating and how often you have protein doses. And it's different in men and women, like especially Mm. when you're looking at stopping that catabolic state. So recovery post-exercise, sex differences there too. So the longer you withhold food and the longer you stay in that catabolic state, the more you feed back to that kisspeptin, right? So if you're in this mm. breakdown state and kisspeptin's like, whoa, I need food, it gets that signaling in women to that metabolic cascade of turning down resting metabolic rate. But for men, it's like, 
I'm in this breakdown state. Okay, well, I'm going to start releasing more amino acids and start trying to fix that problem. And this is where we look at if you back end your calories in the morning and the night and you stay in this breakdown state the whole time in between, which is pretty much intermittent fasting for the most part. In women, you start to put on belly fat and turn down your resting metabolic rate and get endocrine dysfunction. But for men, they lean up a little bit more and they lose body fat because their body's trying to get them out of that state instead of succumbing to that state. It's the complete opposite, isn't it? Wow. And all you hear about in the fitness space these days is how carbs are bad, how Mm. keto is great for performance and mental clarity. And it's just, it's BS, a lot of it. It's really important to know how important like carbohydrates are, like to fuel your training, to be able to like train hard and grow the muscle tissue that you want and optimize like your body composition by the sounds of it. Yeah. And even like in, I talk about how men do so well in low carb stuff, but if they don't have carbohydrate with their protein, then their testosterone drops. Like you need carbohydrate with protein to get that anabolic response and keep that testosterone boost to get what they want out of muscle hypertrophy and muscle repair. And women you need carbohydrate and, and protein, of course, for muscle protein synthesis, but also to help keep that kispeptin turning over to keep endocrine function up. It's very mm. sensitive particularly to the carbohydrate intake. So there's little nuances of, of why you need to mix them and when you need to mix them between men and women, the different responses. Mm-hmm. So how regularly should a woman uh, consume protein? So it depends on age, really. So in, when you're premenopausal, reproductive years, you're really looking at the dosing in your meals and in particular right after exercise to get that muscle protein response. But when you get to perimenopause and postmenopause, it's about dosing on a regular basis to keep amino acid circulating because you need to have a greater amino acid pool for brain function, for the synthesis um, or the signaling for muscle protein synthesis and not the muscle degradation. So again, there's different nuances across the age, but um, the way I really tried to explain from a practical aspect is when you're younger, you just think about every time you eat, you have some protein and be very particular about the dosage post-exercise. Mm. Now, when we get into the peri and post-menopause where appetite gets a little bit muted, protein fills them up too much. I'm like, you have to think about when was the last time I had protein? Has it been more than three hours? And you should probably have a little bit more. Yep. So it's just smaller doses across the day. Yeah, it's interesting because every time you go to the GP, I suppose we we get um, you know different recommendations as well. And so, how much protein for we'll bring it back to sort of the young athletic population before we move on to peri and yeah. postmenopausal. But how big should a serving size of protein be? The general recommendation, sort of by using the food pyramid, would be less than a kilo. Uh, of protein per body weight. Um, but what's the recommendation for athletes? Like how much protein should we have? And then can you overconsume? Uh, so, I mean, we're looking at research in, in resistance trained athletes for the most part, because that's where most comes from. Mm. And we know that in um, athletic men and women, you're looking at around that two grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, and it's relative to body weight. And so it doesn't, it's not a sex specific thing. It's a timing when it becomes a sex specific thing. When you're in a heavy comp stage and you're looking at calorie restriction, you want to boost that up to around 2.8. Because we know that if you have a high protein intake and calorie restriction, you maintain lean mass and you don't have Mm -hmm. any dysfunction. Yeah, that's good to know. Like what Danny said, the recommendations for like, you know, being sufficient are pathetic. That's recommended by your doctor and your GP and everything. Uh, that 2.8, like it seems like a lot of protein. Um, it's quite easy for people that like Danny and myself, we probably easily put back 150 grams quite easily with our habitual sort of food sources and um, eating. So, you know, I think it's really important to understand that it is about the timing. Would you also say the quality of those protein sources has a big yes. importance as well? Yeah, because when we talk about protein, people will be like, oh, well, I have soy. I was like, well, no, it's mm. 50 grams of soy will match the bioavailability of 25 grams of whey because of the leucine content and the essential amino acid content. So it really becomes the quality of the protein that you're taking. It's a bang for your buck, right? So I work with a lot of vegan athletes now mm-hmm. and they're like, well, I have this protein powder. Like you got to put some branch chain amino acids in there, fermented mm-hmm. preferably uh, because it's all about boosting that leucine content because leucine is so essential in women 
not only for MPS, but also because it crosses the blood-brain barrier, just like estrogen, and helps women to fatigue. So yes, it is about the quality, definitely. Mm, Yeah, and that's really important to understand. Um, And I know, like, even moving on to, I guess, the training component, is there a massive difference in how a female should train in comparison to a male? I know it's all muscles and bones and we have the same skeleton, but trying to optimize performance, is there a key difference between being in a gym? Oh, this is where we can bring in uh, menstrual cycle thinking. Yeah. This is becoming the new new concept. Well, not new, but it is now finally getting some airtime in media. Because when you look at hormones, and as you talked about estrogen and testosterone, but when we look at low hormone phase, when estrogen and progesterone are relatively low, this is where women's bodies are more like men. So we have a lower core temperature. We can handle higher stress we recover faster, uh, we can use carbohydrate and store it a lot easier. Then when we hit ovulation, we can take advantage of the estrogen surge because estrogen in isolation is uh, anabolic. Mm-hmm. So this is a time to like really have a really high training stress because you'll recover really well. Then when estrogen progesterone start to come up after ovulation, this is more steady state and deload. So if we're looking at how we're mapping our training and being in the gym you want to plan what intensities are and what your goal is according to your cycle. Mm. And for women, like a typical periodization program of three weeks on one week off doesn't work. Mm. You're going to miss the mark at some point because most women don't have a textbook perfect 28 day menstrual cycle. There's short ones, there's long ones, there's a regular one. So if you're tracking to your own cycle and you know, oh, look, I'm in the low hormone phase and I really need to maximize some training stress, this is the time to do it. For men, they don't have to think that hard. They're like, oh, look, <laughs> Tuesday, Thursday, it's deadlift. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's Absolutely. so true. It's like Monday's chest day every day of it's the same. Yeah, every week. Yeah. Oh, that's, it's really good to hear that because it's something um, Danny and I are both very public about um, when we came off contraception, you know, getting our cycles regular again and knowing, uh, or I noticed a huge difference in my training performance around my cycle. And that's when I started to become curious as to being like, how come I could add 20 kilos on the bar? And then this week, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. I'm Mm -hmm. like, borderline sad I've got no um like endurance in the gym I feel puffed and fatigued and I think it's just really good to be able to empower like other people and not feel like I'm just weak today once you've got that knowledge and that push and pull you can really start optimizing yourself in your training yeah and I find when you have that objective data like you're you're tracking your training and your menstrual cycle and you see this patterning of like day 23 and 24 of your cycle you always feel like shit you're like, mm-hmm. I can't push it. Like what's going on before you had that data. You're like, well, what did I do? I suck. My fitness is going down. I'm not very mm-hmm. strong. I didn't sleep well enough. Oh, I didn't recover well enough. And so you go through all these things. And you never really nail it down until you go, oh, look, it's day 23. I always feel this way. It's a yep. hormone driven thing. So then you cycle in some deload or some technique work on that day. Yep. yep, perfect. And when it comes to missing periods and absent periods, again, it's very common um, in all sort of sport, but particularly in the fitness industry as well. I lost my period for a very long time and it took a good 18 months of hard interventions to bring it back. But just to put it simply, what can actually cause a missing period? So if it goes away after you've had it, it's secondary amenorrhea. And that has to do with uh, kisspeptin perturbance. You don't have a luteinizing hormone surge. You have a lot of anovulatory cycles. So you're not going to be producing progesterone and then your body downturns, you don't produce estrogen. So you have no cycle. Um, It's not a body fat um, aspect. A lot of people like, oh, you're too lean. So you lost your period has nothing to do with that. It has to do with stress and it has to do with um, what we call the delta or energy in for maintaining health as well as supporting training and adaptations and the energy out that you have through your daily stress, which people don't really think have a big impact on things, but the daily stress and the training stress. Mm -hmm. And it's the energy availability in the, you know, the sport medicine world, it's low energy availability where you don't have enough to be able to support basic function. So your menstrual cycle stops. And this is what happens a lot in sport is we become so obsessed with performance 
and it can be conscious or, un, or a subconscious aspect of the drive for performing well. Our appetites get muted when we get into high intensity and heavy training. And we just miss the mark on getting enough calories in. When I work with a lot of female athletes and say, you need to up your calorie content by 800 to 1,000 a day, most people are like, what? Mm. Can't eat that much. What do you mean? I'm going to put on so much weight. So then it's the timing thing. Like if you're fueling in around training, you can easily bring that calorie content up. Yep. And amazingly, people lean up. They're like, oh my gosh, mm. I'm eating so much and I'm leaning up. It's because now your body's like, I don't have to hold on to reserves mm. because I have enough coming in for basic function and enough for training adaptation. Mm. And then when it gets into that settled state, you get that LH pulse back in your periods. Mm, that is incredible and that is such an important message right there you know Mm. your body wants to be fueled it doesn't mean you're going to put on a whole bunch of body fat you know it's about the timing it's about the quality of your food and as you said reducing the stress so losing your period it's not just body fat related it's about lifestyle stress and I think you know personally I definitely didn't include that as well and most of us don't we lead, lead busy lives and that's not an optimal reproductive body and lifestyle so naturally yeah you would lose your period if you're really stressed it makes Mm. sense Mm. yeah and it's really important that message as well to consider like what you just said Stacey it's about the energy that you're consuming on a daily basis and we or I get lots of messages and we um, communicate with a lot of our audience about how important calories um, in is when you're training hard because I hear from so many girls who are just training six days a week eating 1400 calories and it just breaks my heart to be like, we need, you need to eat to support your training. It's so common. And I don't know what it is about like 16 to 1800 calories, but that is probably not your maintenance calories. If you're um, an athlete or training hard in the gym. And I think as well, like it surprises a lot of the girls that I work with when I'm like, no, 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 you need to eat more than this and you won't gain weight. You're going to maintain. If we just do this gradually, like you, your maintenance calories is not 1800. I can promise you. It's usually can be pushed a lot higher than that. Exactly, exactly. I think just in that whole, um, like, where does the 14, 16, 1800 calorie thing come from? Like magazines, like Women's Health, Self, all those things around Mm. the holiday time period, they're like, you eat so many cookies, you have to spend so much time Mm. on the treadmill. So people are like, how much I hate those, right? Because it's not that kind of calorie calorie. Mm. it used to be 1200 but now it's climbed to 1400 we're getting there god i know um stacy yeah. calories you can't generalize it but if you had like someone healthy bmi very active um is there like a budget and i know well not a budget but like a generalization to be like you know you should be optimizing between 2000 to 3000 if you're an endurance or um a crossfitter or a gym-based person person yeah i mean when we look at like a resting metabolic rate like if you're healthy a healthy uh, reproductive woman your resting metabolic rate is anywhere between 1400 and 1800 calories and that's just lying on the couch watching netflix like barely even using the remote and then as soon as you get up and start walking around your house and do some chores that bumps it up you know another few hundred calories so if you're on that 1800 you're already up to 2000 then you start walking outside and doing your daily life. You're putting a few more in. And then you add training onto that. So it's like the more muscle you have, muscle mass you have, the greater your resting metabolic rate. That's a given. Mm. There are some variations within it. Um, but the concept of that resting metabolic rate being higher than what most people think and the impact that has when you start moving around, that's the conversation. It's like if you're a resistance trained athlete, from a cardiovascular standpoint, you don't feel as taxed, but your body's under a significant amount of stress. And to counter that stress and get adaptations, you need to eat. Mm. Endurance athletes, they can translate. I've had three or four hours on the bike. I need to eat, but they still don't eat enough because they don't realize how many actual calories they're burning and how that can affect them the next day. Mm. We know from resistance training and um, things like impact athletes. So that could be MMA, can be things like even rugby soccer on the field any kind of collision that the resting metabolic rate stays elevated for 24 hours so you're after you finish that event 
that there's all these other factors that come into play. So from the mm. generalization standpoint, from an endurance athlete, depends on the training. Is it a three or four hour bike day? Is it an hour run? Then you're looking more at the calories you're consuming in and around training to kind of boost the calorie intake. You're looking at resistance trained athletes and intermittent sport athletes. And the collision factor depends on what kind of intensity you're doing on that day. And it can be anywhere from a boost of four to 800 calories in addition to just lifestyle. Mm. And that's where people are like, what do you mean I need to eat? Because all these messages I get from media is calories in, calories out, reduce your calories to lose body fat. And yep. that mm-hmm. is a complete misnomer. It works in, in like sedentary to obese individuals who definitely need to cut back. Mm-hmm. But in the athletic fitness population, it's just such a misstep to women. Yeah, I just, oh, that's why it's so aggravated in the mm. magazines. Yeah, because <laughs> it just yes. promotes myths. Yeah, it's so true. And mm. more often than not, eating less is not the answer for the body that you want. Most of the time, it's not, especially for our audience, Stacey. You know, they're all very active, high achievers, over trainers. So it is about putting that message out like to get the body that you want, you've actually got to go through periods where you eat and treat um, your calories or maintenance calories like a goal, like when you're dieting. And then you've got to go into surpluses. And then if you want to build, you've got to eat more on top of that as well to be able to build new muscle tissue. So it, it is hard when there is mixed messages it definitely is and then you know as you get older even that starts to change and it comes more into the quality of the diet it's the amount and then the quality where you're a little bit younger you get away with a lot more things which Mm. is good and bad but setting those good habits in of eating around training the quality of your food it'll just lead you through through life in such a great way Mm, yeah yeah um aside from increasing calories so let's just say someone's lost their period they've come to you aside from a calorie increase because not all athletes can reduce their training because their sport entails a significant amount of training what else would you recommend someone to do just easy practical steps in order to get them on a pathway of a healthy functioning body yeah, I, most of the athletes that come to me are on pro contracts and they can't break the contract. Mm-hmm. Like they have to keep performing. And in order to perform well, we know they have to get their periods back. So we look at the Delta, we look at the intensity of the training and in areas where we can take out some quote junk training or junk miles or time that doesn't necessarily serve the purpose of improving performance. We take that mm-hmm. out. Then we look at the residual intensity days and we match the specific calorie needs in around the training for that intensity day. And then we look in away from that morning training or that evening training of where we can put a little bit more of a high quality protein carbohydrate in. So the body stays out of that catabolic state um, because that's the big worry. As soon as you hit that catabolic state, that's where you start getting the signaling to keep the period gone. So we want to really remove that catabolic state as fast as possible and change the delta of that catabolic state and the lack of calories to being more of a, of a positive scope. And it can take anywhere from three to six months when you can't stop the training. Mm. And I'm not going to lie. Like if some, if I lost my period and went to someone, they told me to completely stop training and I'm not a professional athlete anymore. I'd be like, you're crazy. That's my outlet, right? So Mm. I'm pretty sure that most of the people that are listening to this podcast be like, I'm not a professional, but I'm not going to stop training. So it comes down to Delta. It's like looking at where you can eliminate things that aren't going to help you achieve your goal. Pick out those very key workouts and really fuel well in and around that and look to put in high quality protein and carbohydrate at other parts of the day to minimize that catabolic stress. Mm. And that's the faster way to recovery. Because if you go to a GP, you go to an endocrinologist, you go to a sports med doc, their automatic response is you have to stop training. Yeah. Mm. They don't look at what are the other factors around it. They don't look at the mental relief that we get from training. Yeah. They don't look mm-hmm. at the cultural aspects of that's where I get away from stress. That's where I get away from my kids. That's mm-hmm. where I have time out outside that I need for myself. Yeah. So there's so many things wrapped up in it that it comes down to what are the key steps? It's getting out of that catabolic state. Mm. 
Yeah, I really love how you said that, Stacey, because it is the common um, script that's given out is, you know, besides going on contraception to get your period back, it's it's completely stop training and just eat more. And they don't realize how a, a patient is going to walk away and do none of that and then resent the medical system even more for telling them to do that and then feel even more isolated and abnormal mm. for not having a cycle and like they're on their own. So it, there are people out there that can help you with those recommendations. And I hope that in the future, it does sort of bleed into to the uh, pun intended into the medical system a bit more <laughs> yeah and I like the fact that you just said that you get put on a pill to get your period back because mm. you don't like mm. a pill is not a true period it's a withdrawal bleed and that's the other misstep of like adolescent athletes who go to a GP because their periods are irregular or they haven't started their period yet and they get put on an OC and it's not it has nothing to do with a marker of your endocrine system it downregulates your natural your natural hormones, and then the bleed is a synthetic withdrawal bleed. It has no representation of your actual health. Mm. And there's a lot of GPs who get offended when I tell them that, or tell their patients to tell them that, because it's something that isn't communicated well either. And then finally, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's right. Mechanistically, it isn't a real bleed. It's How- a synthetic." How can they not? Um, I don't understand how that is still common practice. I really don't understand if you understand basic physiology or how hormones work. Wouldn't they understand that it is a withdrawal bleed? No, and it's part of the education process. Like mm. most of the medical or the medicine information that doctors get come from pharmaceutical reps, some people that are pushing the drugs. Yeah. And they don't give the full details they talk about the mechanism a little bit they talk about some of the side effects but mainly they push it to everyone should have this drug Mm. type thing in this population and then when you look at med school there's such a very 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 tiny amount in the general medical um, education that talks specifically about the reproductive aspects of women um, and the side effects of going in and having having no period or irregular periods and the answer is put on the pill but they don't go into the rationale of when they come off the pill those problems are still going to be there yeah mm-hmm. they just don't go into it they don't go into the undercurrents. same with nutrition they get maybe an hour and the whole five years of education about nutrition yeah, yeah. very yeah very important so and these know a little bit about a lot yeah. but not enough to be really well I went through that experience last year and it was um, I'm 28 now but if I was a young 16 year old in that same position it would have really hurt me because it was quite full-on I mean I wanted to get my period back after becoming more educated and so I went to the GP and he said well Danny you just need to go back on the pill and and like and literally he would not budge because I I knew the educated questions to ask he's like you either go back on the pill or you do nothing go back on the pill do and I was getting so angry so I went out and made a podcast about it and created a whole you know everyone's like yeah my doctor did the same but if I was a young 16 year old girl I would have listened to him gone back on the pill Mm -hmm. or yeah even if I was not confident enough to speak out about it that would have really mentally damaged me because it was full on yeah yeah. yeah. And often the mom is with the teenage girl, right? Mm. And the mom is like, oh, okay, well, I got to listen to the doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel sorry for my daughter because, you know, she's eight. <laughs> and she's mom. No, she's so lucky. <laughs> How good's that? <laughs> God, I just want to be your daughter going to the GP with you. Oh, that would be, yeah. <laughs> um, Let me tell you how it really is, man. Yes, <laughs> Let me educate you. Um, yes. It's a really interesting conversation. And even um, when I decided to come off uh, contraception as well, it was stemmed by working as a midwife and watching all these, you know, late 20s come off contraception and struggle hard to get pregnant or get their cycle back and because they had had it for a decade so they hadn't been tracking yeah. it so they didn't know they had the problems and I was like mm. I don't want to wait until I'm 30 and then I have to realize oh I actually have never had a regular period it was the unknown that really I think and the fear-based stuff now with all the stuff that's coming out uh, yeah. and Stacey what would you tell people um, that you know don't have a cycle what's some of I guess you know not the side effect but the risks of staying in that state and not prioritizing your reproductive health Oh, wow. There's so many different, like, I was looking at, okay, so what do you want to be when you're 80? Do you want to be in assisted living and not being able to do anything for yourself? Or do you want to be living independently and traveling and doing a whole bunch of stuff? Mm -hmm. Right? It's a long game. 
So when I'm talking with people who are older who haven't had their periods and they're like, I'm really motivated to get it back. And they're worried about low bone density, poor muscle mass, um, lots of visceral or abdominal fat, um, and some actual menopausal symptoms of, um, you know, brain fog and, and, and then the ultimate of not being able to reproduce. They're very motivated. So with younger athletes and don't see the long game, it's like, okay, well, if you are an athlete and you want a longer term in your, in your sport, it's like, if you don't get your period back, one, you are losing an ergogenic eight. We know this. And I've gotten backlash by saying, if you don't have a period, then you're, you're not a healthy female athlete, meaning that naturally cycling, like mm. we to your period as endocrine health. And if you have endocrine health, then you can put on more training stress and recover from it. Mm. So you're going to improve your performance. If that doesn't sit well, then I'm like, okay, it was stress reactions. If you're a runner or you're lifting heavy, you don't want a stress reaction because then you can fracture your bone and then you're definitely on. But if you don't have your period for a very long period of time, you're looking at low bone density. You're looking at possibly longer term um, anemia. You're looking at poor muscle mass development. You're also looking at uh, decreased uh, VO2 max, decreased overall anaerobic performance because your body just can't handle that stress. Mm -hmm. So when you start talking in more athletic terms to someone who is an athlete and doesn't have a period, they're like, oh, okay, well, maybe I should start taking some of this on board because it's about the performance angle. You want to perform at your best. You want to achieve your performance potential. You need to have basic health covered. And if you don't have your period, you're not healthy. Mm. Amazing. Big statement, but so true. Like, you know, Mm. it's the definition of health and we need to start seeing it as a biofeedback marker, just like you take a blood pressure, like those sorts of things wouldn't be ignored. So I don't see why missing a period still is. Right. And then for women who don't have a regular period and they're concerned, it's an undercurrent of PCOS, right? Or PCOS Mm. or endometriosis. So it can also be a signal that they might not have other overt symptoms, and they can catch it early if they don't have a period, right? So mm-hmm, there's yeah. so many things wrapped up in it. And I, I still get frustrated when people are like, well, I'm just going to be on the pill. I don't want to have kids and it gives me a period. It's like, it's not the answer. And mm-hmm. matter of fact, it, it downgrades your performance because there are so many factors that those synthetic hormones do to impede performance potential. Mm-hmm. So, yep. yeah. Wow. Massive. There you go. Well, thank you for all that very useful information. That's, um, yeah, that's what we are so passionate about preaching, all of us. And um, the more we talk about it, the more people will be educated and feel empowered. Um, so something that Sherelle and I haven't really spoken about in, in our episodes is what happens after as we head towards menopause. Um, so what do we have to look forward to hormonally as we uh, endeavour in menopause in the next decade? Um, a whole new life. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I think it's misunderstood as much as like the menstrual cycle isn't talked about when you start talking about menopause, mm. I really love, and that's the ironic love. When you look at pictures of aging men and aging women, like you have a picture in the media of like a six year old athletic man and he's all cut and ripped up and stuff. And you see the six year old woman, she's like on the Nautilus machines and a big shirt and has like <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, more sociocultural, stereotypical images, and that's not how it needs to be. Mm. And you look at guidelines of people who are talking about menopause, oh, 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity, a little bit of resistance training, body weight exercise, and that's great for health. And it's like, no, no, that does mm. not work. So when we're looking at perimenopause, which isn't understood, and it's, that time it can be as early as your early 30s or can be as late as your late 40s where you start having a misstep in in the ratio of estrogen progesterone Mm -hmm. the way that you can acknowledge or understand what's happening is your periods don't change your cycle doesn't change but your responses to training do so you'll be like I don't understand I'm 37 now and two years ago I used to be able to nail this lean up get strong and follow all of this and none of that's working for me now. 
I can't build muscle as easily. I feel a little bit squishy no matter what I'm doing. I'm really tired. I don't recover well. I'm starting to put on belly fat. What's going on? Mm. And it, it becomes this ratio. Women start to become a little bit more estrogen dominant. So you have more inflammation. You have less of a signaling for lean mass development. We become more sensitive to carbohydrate. So this is a time to really start looking at what do I need to do from a training and nutrition standpoint to give my body the same benefit those hormones used to give me because the hormones are starting to come down. The ratios are changing. We have to look for an external stress. So the external stress is lifting heavy shit. You need to be able to lift heavy, not that eight to 10 or 12 rep range, because that's not what I mean by heavy. I mean, by that zero to six reps, you are working that neuromuscular component for that fast twitch, getting that strong stress stimulus to build lean mass and following up with a heavy dose of protein so that your body is sensitive to building that lean mass. Mm. And when we think about from the cardiovascular aspect, we are already as women predisposed to being able to go long and slow. We need to stimulate our body to be able to go fast and to get that high intensity or we lose it. Mm. And we need that high intensity in order to have glucose control and and maintain insulin sensitivity and to be able to access carbohydrates. So we're looking at high, high intensity. A typical hit class where you're working 80% is not what I mean by high intensity. Mm. I mean that 90% and then recovery is 50%. So that really polarized aspect within one session. We're doing plyo work. So you're doing lots of box jumps in, and a lot of the jumping movements for that high intensity, but also bone stress. Because we know running, and weight bearing is not enough for bone density. You need multi-directional stress. Mm. So that's from a training standpoint. And then from the nutrition standpoint, it's an emphasis on protein and it's an emphasis on lots of colorful plants with carbohydrates. Yeah. One, because we're already a little bit more sensitive to carbohydrate. And two, we really need to develop our gut microbiome to still maintain estrogen metabolism, things like BDNF for brain health that all come from the bugs in our gut that are metabolizing. Mm -hmm. So it's that it becomes a little bit more difficult when you start getting into the late thirties, early forties, but you start nailing it so that when you hit those menopause, you're already there. You're mm -hmm. already into that scope. And when your body's settled into that new biological state, you're like, I got this. Mm. how cool is that so it's definitely not a ticket out we need to train harder by the sounds of it <laughs> really got to step it up and that's where as you said earlier the importance of creating the habits now will pay off in the long game so that's really cool to hear yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> definitely that like you said like lifting heavy shit zero to six rep yes. range is not what you see happens as you age it's the other way it's like oh better be careful just in case <laughs> I, you know oh. roll me ankle or whatever um and i mm. I, I couldn't imagine people even pushing that, to be honest, on women entering their 40s and 50s. Um, so it's really cool to hear how your training should, should change. And um, you mentioned there about your high, the high-intensity cardio. That is something that it seems to be getting a bit of mixed messages um, in social media and fitness and everything. What's your sort of intake on, I guess, using that from a body composition or a performance standpoint when you're younger versus um, it, it perhaps being a bit more important when you're older? Yeah. So when you're younger, that high intensity stuff, it really does stimulate the loss of body fat mm -hmm. um, because it's such a high intensity and has a cascade of hormonal responses and metabolic responses that boost anaerobic capacity and help you strip down body fat. Mm -hmm. When we're talking high intensity in the peri and postmenopausal state, we're talking about it from the aspect is you need that super high intensity for metabolic health. We know from even general health that 20 seconds on, one minute off is so much more beneficial to glucose control and cardiovascular fitness than 30 minutes of steady state activity. Wow. And that's both men and women. So they're both very beneficial. It's just different mechanisms for it. Mm. The one kickback that I see a lot from the peri and postmenopausal group is I've been told I shouldn't do high intensity because it boosts cortisol. It's like, well, actually, it does boost cortisol in two phase, but you can counter that by the nutritional steps that you take. I'm not telling people to do high intensity and then gain that catabolic state. Never mm. have the will. And it becomes super important when you get to peri and postmenopause to match the stress with that protein dose. Mm. And again, to bring the cortisol down, people are like, I already have elevated cortisol. 
Well, yeah. yeah. As you get older, cortisol baseline level comes up and you do things to mitigate it through mindfulness, through more parasympathetic activation that people get to do. Mm. And, and so it is, it's, it sounds hard, but when you start implementing small changes along the line throughout your life, it just becomes how it is. Mm. And then you don't go through that period of going, oh my gosh, what happened? I feel like I woke up overnight and now I'm squishy. Now, how do I get my muscle back? And mm. then have you put it all in all at once. It's like small doses as you're leading up to it. And then your focus when you get to the peri and postmenopause state is the high intensity. And if you are doing a low intensity day, you're going for a jog and you are like going so slow on your jog, power walkers are walking by you. It's like really, really low intensity. Yeah. It's that polarized stuff. So yeah, yeah. Really important to understand. I think, you know, there's a lot of um like you know, like things like F forty five and high intensity is really popular these days. But you know, when I see people upload their hit workouts, I'm like, that's not hit. You know, high intensity is like you are dying. You're like 90, 95% of your max heart rate and what you're doing, you can't sustain for 60 minutes in a class. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. That's that's an, like I have a bane with F forty five. I feel like it is the fastest group population of people who get injured, get into low. Oh, it's kept me as an osteopath in business. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Keeps us all in business. It's not not high intensity. It's that moderate gray zone where people feel like they had a really hard workout, but it's just because they're so tired. Yeah. It's a high, high, and they don't know what low, low is. Yeah. And then they get so yeah. 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 When you when all you do is play with calories in and calories out, you know, you're gonna hit a wall. And then you've got to know how to use these other tools like high intensity, not just for the manipulation of calories, but to consider all the other elements, especially as females with the recovery standpoint. And you know, being able to train um and achieve your goals throughout a lifespan rather than just fixating on where you are now. You gotta yep. um, visualize where you wanna be when you're 80. And I'd never thought about it like that, being like, you know, I want I don't wanna be in an old folks home when I'm so sort of you know entering that I want to be able to do things on my on my own yeah it's been at the forefront of my brain ever since I was little because my great-grandmother lived to be 104 my grandmother right now turned 104 in December so there's longevity in my in my family and on my dad's side my grandmother died when she was 96 because she was put in a home taken out of her house wow put me in home I'm gonna die because I like to be independent and it's like, yeah, I want to be like that too. So yeah. I look at it from a longevity go like, I got a lot of years left. <laughs> so oh, absolutely. Mm. Right? And yeah. And so I look at like when I was a collegiate rower and all the stuff that we did. And now I look at my body composition and fitness levels. Now I'm better now in my forties than I was in my twenties. Yeah, the education process and listening and changing up training uh, really helps and so it's, that's the other messaging that I want women to understand it's like it's not about the long how many minutes and everything that you're doing to burn calories has nothing to do with that mm-hmm. it's about what is your goal in six months what are the things to achieve that goal in six months mm-hmm. if you're going to do an Ironman well maybe you do need to put out those hours but if you're looking for being strong being having lots of energy um, good body composition, feeling confident, then it's about getting in the gym, lifting and doing something for your soul, for that parasympathetic and for that mindfulness and feeling good. Mm. Yes. And mindfulness is definitely a forgotten link in everything, particularly now day and age, everything's so fast paced, but, um, yeah, it's, it's so important. We need to be brought back and into the parasympathetic nervous system, as you said, and just to, to not always be thinking ahead. Um, with, with some of the athletes that you work with, what are some of the mindfulness practices that they embody? Yeah, so one of the easiest things to really put people through to get them to understand what, it, what mindfulness is, I'm like, you take five minutes and you sit somewhere with a cool breeze, if it's a summer day or whatever, and all you're doing is you're feeling the sensation of the wind. So you're not letting um, you know, your thoughts come in, you're just concentrating on one small thing. If it's you know, at night and you can't sit outside, then it's sitting someplace quiet and just observing breath. Like just one small thing to focus. When you're a type A person, you need something to focus on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just one thing and then you can think about that so when you get stressed or you can't sleep 
you think about the sensation of that breeze or that breath coming in and out. So it gives them that one point of focus to be able to relax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's Easy. great advice. That. Yeah. And something I like to do is um, like deep breathing sort of practices, because to me that's productive and I know it's going to, you know, help me in the gym and with other areas as well as give me that sort of relaxation parasympathetic dose. So it is about finding whatever you need to do to be able to convince yourself that you're doing something good for you. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we did touch a little bit on postmenopausal, but yeah, so um, the differences between peri and postmenopausal, are there any or what are the main ones? So the, the I think the misconception is menopause. So menopause is actually one point in time. It's like it's the, the mark on the calendar that says it's been 12 months since I've had a period. That's mm-hmm. your day of menopause. You can celebrate it like a Mm-hmm. hopefully is. not soon hopefully not anytime <laughs> <Yeah>. soon <laughs> but that's what i'm like it's just one point in time and then you're post- yeah. like the next day you're postmenopause. And that's mm. the rest of your life right and perimenopause is all where all the body composition changes happen where you're seeing the squishiness the visceral fat so if you're implementing all of those changes from nutrition and training standpoint you're not going to get all those negative body composition changes mm. you will get a few of course, because you can't completely stop biological aspects of change. But then you just take those same practices and you bring them over into that postmenopause state and keep going. Mm-hmm. Of course, as you get older, you might get osteoarthritis or something. You do have to do modifications, but it's the same idea of polarized training, good recovery, small doses of high intensity and heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good advice there. Something I was going to ask you, Stacey, was you mentioned the importance of quality carbohydrates and how um, crucial that is for, you know, dosing with your protein sources. Do you, um, like, what's your intake on what, I guess, quality means in terms of carbs? Because when you're looking at, I guess, people with the flexible dieting community and tracking macros, you know, they see, I guess, like, you know, processed sugars and sweet potato as all a carbohydrate source. So how do you distinguish the difference and what would be qualified? as um quantity um quality sorry um i always go if it's in a package you just kind of want to avoid it like maple yeah. syrup great it's a simple simple sugar it doesn't quite rate up there with things that have fiber in it but there's some really good beneficial nutritional components of that white table sugar not the same same on the glycemic index but it doesn't have some of the same nutrient that maple syrup does mm-hmm. so i would rate the maple syrup as a higher quality carbohydrate but across the board, we're talking about carbohydrate. The simpler carbohydrates you can take in and around training. So people who like sugar, the best time to use it is in training or around training because that's a carbohydrate that's quickly uptaken. But for general diet, you're looking for things that have fiber in it mm-hmm. because carbohydrate with fiber in it is the way to go because the fiber helps with that microbiome and then the carbohydrate helps with blood glucose, but not a immediate lack. So people are looking at sweet potatoes post-training yeah, good. But you also know that it's a slower release carbs. So you might compromise some carbohydrate uptake. It's great, especially if it's in a meal. But if you're looking for really fast recovery, then you might want to look at a little bit of maple syrup and a protein It's a little bit faster uptake. So again, it's fit for purpose. It's like, what are you doing? Training stress, fast recovery. Maybe you want something that's a little bit higher on the glycemic index than something that has a lot of fiber in it. But then you're having your dinner and it's a couple hours before bed. You want slow, slow re- release carbohydrate so that you don't have an immediate whack of insulin and then drop off and then you're really tired and then you can't sleep. Mm. So that's where you want the fiber to mitigate that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. And I love that you touched on sleep there as well, because there was something I was going to ask you for my selfish self. Um, I'm one of the lucky mm-hmm. ones who like my uh, period really does impact my sleep. I think it's my core body temperature that sort of comes up and I just have a tr- like a, a really hard time for those few days leading into my cycle. And I know a lot of other sort of women experience the same sort of uh, sense of insomnia around that time. Do you have any recommendations on what you would sort of advise if you had an athlete going through a similar thing? Yeah, so it's not just core temperature. It's also because estrogens cross the blood-brain barrier and affect serotonin. So this is where you have a little bit more of serotonin um, sensitivity, and it can cause some anxiety. Mm, yeah, Most of the time, serotonin is great, sweet, but not when there's too much being 
activated in the brain. So this is where we started to talk about adaptogens. So you're looking at rhodiola, you're looking at ashwagandha, some of the more relaxing type adaptogens that really work with estrogen to help mitigate some of the estrogen metabolism, work with cortisol to reduce the anxiety effects of cortisol, and also leucine, because leucine crosses the blood-brain barrier. So tryptophan can't, because it uses the same transport mechanism which will reduce the amount of serotonin that's in the brain. Mm. So when women are having a really difficult time sleeping before their period starts, so it's like the five to seven days before their period starts and really specifically the three or four days before their period starts. I have them do some branched chain amino acids in in a cold drink before they go to bed. Mm. They get leucine, it's going up there, they're dropping their core temperature. And then we're using adaptogens during the whole high, high hormone we're looking at rhodiola and ashwagandha for the whole high mm, Yeah, that's great advice. Ooh. I've never heard of that one. I'll definitely include it because, yeah, it was something I was noticed. I was like, what's going on? And then I was doing mm. some research and I was like, okay, I think it's this time every month. I think there's, it's telling yeah. me something. <laughs> yeah. Need to work on what's going on in the brain. Start yeah. working those neurotransmitters. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Well, thank you. I feel like we could pick your brain for hours, yeah. to be honest, but we are always mindful of time. Um, but you do have a lot of amazing content out there. I mean, your TED Talk um, that I would highly recommend everyone to listen to, you know, with the bold statement, women are not small men, super powerful. You've got your book Raw as well, which is another incredible resource that I would encourage everyone to grab a copy of. Um, and some courses as well. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about the courses that you run? Yeah, so uh, I guess it was a year year ago, October, I think we launched our first one. So we have one that's called Women Are Not Small Men, and that covers everything. So that's like the mega course that talks about um, the changes in the sex differences and the training and the nutrition we need to do from puberty up to menopause. And then we have a peri and menopausal specific course that's a bit smaller that really dials into all the things we need to know that's happening in that peri and postmenopausal state. Um, and then this year we'll roll out a youth one that's equivalent to that to talk about the the mind and the body of the adolescent athlete and how to work and train um, young girls as well. So yeah, yeah. then we'll have some mini courses. Um, and then we have a follow-up to Roar coming out in July oh. that is for the peri and postmenopausal set because that tends to be where we get the most questions now. Yep. So mm. the push for the past five years, well, for me, the past 25 years has been the you know premenopausal women are not small men, menstrual cycle sinking. Now that conversation is normalized. And now people are like, wait, I'm perimenopausal, I'm menopausal, where do I go? So that's- yep. Yeah. And we get a lot of that too. Like we have, um, you know, a younger audience, but we still do have women that are now stepping into that span of their life. And uh, myself and Danny were like, we need to, you know, bring some information um, for them so that they can understand as well, because it is still very taboo menopause. That is still very taboo in comparison to um, your cycle. Yeah, I know. I mean, it is in Western society. People don't want to talk about it. They're like, even research stops women hit menopause. Oh God. Like, way too many outliers way <laughs> too many can't do it can't do it unless you're like sick and then they're looking at you yeah. um, but there are other cultures who they don't even have words for vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes they're just like yeah whatever it's great i'm old i'm the elder i get to be the head of society so wow. it's really interesting the way western society kind of pigeonholes women into certain taboos and they don't want to talk about it Mm. why do you think that is the case Stacey is do you think that's perhaps a bit of I don't know shame when it comes to those sorts of topics or why do you think that changes depending on the culture um well western society has always marginalized women across the board like you know even in the 50s women were too delicate and like flower petals they couldn't work outside the house let alone do anything besides you know um, Russian twists in their house. And, that's mm-hmm. it. Uh, and then when you look at, yeah, you know, you know, you have that image in your head now. Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in their sweater, in their matching sweater vest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Dumbbell. Makes me sick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when you think of like the Japanese culture, they've always mm. revered women. Right? It's, they've always revered women as the mother and the matriarch and 
they're the ones that are responsible for reproduction. They're the ones that have the medicine, the knowledge, mm. men as well, but they've never been marginalized like women have in Western society. Mm. So it's the cultural thing of how patriarchal our society has, has grown up into being. Um, and then how other societies have not had that patriarchal stance and mm. exists now. Mm. Um, so it's interesting, but now with the global globalization of, of everything, the, you have the cross-pollination of different cultures and people are like, wait, we're about equality. We want to be able to be empowered for ourselves. We shouldn't be looking at black, white, man, woman. We should just be thinking, okay, what's the best for this person? I'm this person and what's the best for me? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely love that. And um, yeah, for all of our listeners who uh, would like to seek more information, just it's all here. You know, we've got courses, we've got books, we've got your talk, Stacey. So yeah, thank you so much for your time today. I know I've taken a lot of gold nuggets out and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you for doing what you do and being the voice for the women. It's, uh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I couldn't do it if I wasn't on podcasts and stuff either. Mm. So, you know, it's pushing the message. So thanks for having me and helping to push it all out to empower more women. Mm. Yeah, it's our honor. It's our it's our absolute uh, vision here is just to empower everyone to take control over their health and fitness and body and work with it rather than against it. So where can our listeners find more about you or access these courses um, or follow you on social media? Uh, social media and the website are the same. It's just Dr. Stacy Sims, drstacysims.com website and social media is Dr. Stacy Sims. And yeah, that's how you can find me. Easy. Perfect. We'll pop all that in the show notes and um, yeah, no doubt people will come looking for more info. So that's exciting. So thank you again. Yeah. Thanks Thanks again, Stacey. And to everyone who listened, if you did gain something from this episode, and I know everyone will, please do take a screenshot uh, of the episode itself, uh, post it up on your Instagram story, tag myself, tag Danielle, and of course, make sure you tag Dr. Stacey Sims. Thanks, ladies. Thanks, Stacey.